This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its Impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. In fall winter 2020, the IBM Center for the Business of Government initiated a challenge grant competition, soliciting essays from academics and practitioners describing how government can best transform the way it works, operates, and delivers service to the public, given the impact of this pandemic. How has the pandemic impacted the way local governments operate and deliver public services? What are local governments doing differently in the aftermath of the pandemic? And how can local governments work with stakeholders to bring back local economies? I will explore these questions and much more with Tad McGilliard and Laura Kaderis from the International City-County Management Association, ICMA, and contributors to the IBM Center special report, COVID-19 and its Impact, Seven Essays on Reframing Government Management and Operations. Tad, Laura, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Likewise. Uh, I want to thank you once again for being contributors to the IBM Center special report, COVID-19 and its Impact. Uh, And your essay, I want to explore your essay, your contribution, Transforming Local Government Service Delivery in the Wake of COVID-19. So historically, how has local government management been impacted and transformed by pandemics before? Well, this is Ted. I'll go ahead and take the the first question here. It's such an interesting question to me because I've got a background in history. And so anytime I can kick off an interview with a a history question, it's, it's, it's great. But you know, the one example we cite in our paper refers back to Philadelphia and the outbreak of yellow fever, which at the end of the day resulted in a whole bunch of public health um, policies and programs, one of which was a board of health, which was established, inspection stations for ships uh, arriving at the city's wharfs and docks and, and bringing commerce to the city were inspected. And some of the early works in public water treatment were begun in the aftermath of the, of the yellow fever campaign. You know, one of the interesting things I think about a lot of the infrastructure and the capacity that we have in this country today uh, and elsewhere around the world as well is the focus on um, health, safety and hygiene. So a lot of the the stuff that we do now to protect drinking water, provide indoor air quality, keep stormwater and sewage flows from from coming together. All of that has a background and and ties back to a memory of public health and previous attempts at you know, preventing the outbreak of disease. You know, one of the interesting things, I've got a really good friend who works in, in waterworks and water treatment, and, and she took me on a visit a, a number of years ago to, to what she was doing. And, and quite honestly, if you've ever toured a waterworks treatment plant, 
Um, you've seen how much effort goes into creating safe drinking water, and you'll probably never want to leave that faucet running again while brushing your teeth. Thanks, Tad. That was great history. Um, you know, innovation and transformation, as you point out in your essay, are often born out of necessity. How has the challenge of the current pandemic produced creative change in local government administration and operations? Well, this is Laura. I'll chime in here. And I think that the exponential growth of the public health threat and the rapid onset of the lockdown just really forced governments to adapt at a much quicker pace than normal and to also live with a certain degree of ambiguity. So they really had to be okay moving indefinitely into spaces where they might not have been completely comfortable or felt like they had anticipated all of the hiccups. So one early example were public meetings. There was an obligation to keep government business running. And so you had communities turning to whatever off-the-shelf software or platforms were easiest to deploy, whether that was Facebook or Zoom or Microsoft Teams, so that they could hold these meetings virtually and without disruption. Um, you also had communities that at least initially couldn't get around the face-to-face -face requirements. So they turned to meeting in unexpected outdoor places like parking garages um, or sort of quasi-outdoor places. Um, and then another thing that we heard a lot about was figuring out ways to really quickly repurpose assets and staff when their old function no longer make, made sense. So that could mean using infrastructure for childcare facilities or to facilitate broadband access, or even the opening up of the public right of way to allow dining or greater pedestrian use as we saw in a lot of communities across the country. Tad and Laura, you point out in your essay that you know mega disasters of the early 21st century, 9-11, uh, Hurricane Katrina illustrated the need for higher levels of local government preparedness and planning for when and not if a disaster strikes. I was wondering, could you elaborate what has changed most in local governments around disaster management and recovery? Well, this is Tad. I'll, I'll, I'll take this next question just real quick. And I, I, I'm glad you picked up on that because that is a theme that we started developing a few years ago with some of our earlier disaster management and recovery work, um, because it is true. I think most communities are going to have to deal with some kind of disaster at some point um, uh, in their existence. And many places are very adept at, at dealing with that. But what has changed for most governments around disaster management and recovery? I think for starters, um, in the aftermath of 9-11, um, money started flowing from the federal government to states and localities, and it continues to, to do so today through um, grants from the Department of Homeland Security and uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. So there's a lot of money which has flowed downward from the feds to, to cities and counties and, and states and, uh, and other local entities. And one of the things that we were really pleased to see, and we, we did a survey in, in 2019, right before the pandemic, obviously without any foreknowledge that a, a pandemic was coming, um, or we would have done a few different things with the survey. But we were very pleased to see in this survey on disaster recovery that, you know, nine in 10, nine out of 10, I should say, local governments uh, either had developed or were developing hazard mitigation plans, disaster recovery strategies, and continuity of, of operation plans. Almost all of them had some level of mutual aid agreement in place with their surrounding jurisdictions. So what we saw in the survey was a, a very high level of preparedness for the kinds of events that we would think of as more typical disasters. Um, obviously, the pandemic's thrown a, a monkey wrench into everything. I don't know how many people were as adequately prepared for a long-term 
disaster like a pandemic, but I do think that they've um, this this prior preparedness for what we might have thought is more typical kinds of disasters and the necessary recovery steps has really prepared them for dealing with the pandemic in ways today that they probably wouldn't have been capable of a decade or 20 years ago. You mentioned the length of this pandemic. We're almost on the year anniversary when the shutdown started. How has the nature and longevity of the pandemic prompted a collective rethinking of how local governments respond to emergencies? Well, if I might, I'll build on what Tad was saying. I think that this last year has really demonstrated the intersectionality of different types of emergencies. So you had this giant invisible threat that impacted the entire world, which itself is interesting since you can compare how other places did this or did not do this and what that meant in terms of outcomes. Um, But as things unfolded and we were all really stuck in front of screens and data nonstop, it quickly became clear how disproportionate the impacts were on people of color and other segments of the workforce and communities. And then you layer on what Ted was just talking about, the natural disasters, the wildfires, the storms, and you need to help people get through those safely, but without exacerbating the COVID threat. And then you layer on the civil and political unrest of last summer. And so for one thing, I think that it has underscored the need to think about the root of these inequities and how some people are disproportionately impacted again and again, and how to start to configure systems so that people aren't at such a disadvantage from the get-go. And also, I think the intersectionality of response, the local, the state, the federal, is an ongoing conversation that we're still having as well. I'll just throw in just a couple more thoughts to this one, because I um, you know, I think Laura has, has phrased it correctly with the intersectionality of emergencies. I mean, we um, we have tried as, as local governments and as associations, as organizations and businesses all over the world, trying to stay as far ahead of the disasters we possibly can, but it keeps throwing new wrinkles at us. And so, um, you know, it's very important, I think, for local governments to keep this in mind as future events and disasters like this play out, that um, the length of time that it takes to recover may require to start thinking um, longer term about when particular phases of a disaster phase might actually come into play, whether it's planning, recovery, long-term restoration. Yeah, as a follow-up, uh, I'd like to ask you both, as I was reviewing and editing your piece, you know, what you mean by hot-washing approaches? What, what is the term hot-washing? And, and how can uh, the hot-washing of approaches uh, used during the COVID-19 pandemic inform and update hazard mitigation and disaster recovery plans in real time? Sure, I'll, 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 I'll start. Um, and and we, we try to avoid jargon and speak in... Uh, the Queen's English as often as we can. So apologies for, for uh, letting that slip into the report for you guys. But um, you know, hot washing is simply just a, the, the, the comprehensive systemic review of, you know, what's going right, what went not so well uh, in an event. And, you know, in this case, um, it's almost like an after action reporting uh, process, which is something that local governments do. Um, they're already doing, we've, we've done several presentations over the last few months of things that local governments have done. Um, to better understand what, again, what they've done well, what they've not done so well. You know, I, I would imagine as local governments are doing this, that, uh, you know, an example of a what didn't go so well is dates right back to the beginning of the pandemic is, um, boy, it would have been really great to have a much more resilient stockpile of PPP on hand um, when the pandemic was rolling out versus the, you know, the mad scramble that we saw around the country and around the world to find 
you know, different kinds of ways of um, covering up your nose and your mouth so you didn't spread the disease. So you both point out in your piece that the pandemic has disproportionately devastated segments of local economic activity, bars, restaurants, hotels, you know, tourism, arts and entertainment. I was wondering what is being done to ensure the stability of small businesses, which, as you so eloquently put it, are often the central nervous system of local economic ecosystems. Um, I'll talk. I'll start real quick, I guess. Um, you know, first off, there's there's help on the way. Today is the day that the, the the stimulus package, the latest stimulus package, was was passed by Congress. It's now going to the White House, and there's a lot of um, support in there for some of these kinds of entities, and there has been in previous. Um, federal packages as well. You know, one of the things that we've, we've noticed, uh, what I think has been very interesting is sort of the, 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 the non-governmental partnerships that have been created by local governments inside their local communities and in their regions with organizations like Chambers of Commerce, um, Community Foundation, National Philanthropies, universities, anybody who had an opportunity to step in and provide some support, local governments were very creative and trying to create these partnerships with, with organizations to do things like support small and, and micro business enterprises. You know, local governments have also been able to do some things on their end as well that may not um, be like direct payments like you're going to see from things like PPP loans and such, but they've been able to waive fees and fines and licensure requirements and all those kinds of things that, that it takes to operate a business um, inside a jurisdiction, they've been able to waive um, some of those or at least delay them and, and allow local governments to not have to make those payments um, on the same timeline or same time frame that they might have in, 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 in normal times. And I, I guess I would just, the only thing I would add is, is that as trying as this last year has been on, on families and households, there has been a pretty perseverant spirit of communities coming together to support uh, small businesses to support beloved community institutions. And, you know, a lot of that's on a more volunteer basis and local governments have varying roles in facilitating that. But I, I hope, I expect, and I hope that that will be sustained as we begin to see, you know, the, the vaccination percentage creep up and, and we see these literal signs of life as we head into spring here um, about, you know, approaching the, the other side in air quotes of this, of this event. So, uh, Tad, before we close the first segment, could you tell us more about the history and mission of the International City-County Management Association, ICMA? Sure, I'll, I'll take a stab. Um, you know, ICMA, the acronym stands for the International City-County Management Association, and we are the um, professional home, professional association, however you want to call it, for the appointed um CAOs or CEOs of local governments. So city managers, county managers, town supervisors, um, uh, appointed officials go by varying names. We got our start in 1914 um, at a time when there was somewhat of a crisis, not somewhat, a, a fairly um, serious crisis happening in local government where um, organizations were looking for um, local governments that were more ethical and transparent and professional. So out of this crisis was born the council manager form of government. And ICMA's early days were built around um, promoting the form of government and expanding it across the United States and around the world. Today, roughly half of the local governments in the United States can be considered a variation of the council manager form of government. 
But over the last 107 years, um, you know, ICMA has become much more than the professional home for this um, part of local government. Those are our core members, but we do, you know, work in all kinds of areas. We produce knowledge resources. We have a publishing unit. We have a very robust annual conference and regional conference program. Um, one of the things that people don't know that much about us um, is just the sheer volume of survey work that we do. We, we, we produce lots of data. On average, we're probably doing three to six national surveys of local government policies and programs on some topic that intersects with, um, with local government management. We also have a fairly robust um, technical assistance wing that works with local governments. A lot of that work is international. For the last 30 years, we've done um, decentralization, democracy and governance work in over 70 countries and through more than 500 projects. So ICMA as, a, as an entity is, is one part membership and professional association, one part um, knowledge center and, and, and another part consulting practice. What are local governments doing differently in the aftermath of this pandemic? We will explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its Impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. Joining me today is Tad McGilliard and Laura Kaderis. Tad, uh, Laura, you point out in your piece that the COVID-19 pandemic has brought into focus the widespread challenges facing the most vulnerable segments of local communities. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more. What have you found being done to address some of those key issues in this area? Well, I think it really can't be overstated how important just that awareness is as a first step. Um, as we talked about in the piece, and I think we mentioned earlier, I mean, the, the data are, are there for anyone who chooses to look. Uh, the data on cases and deaths disaggregated by race and tagged to different locations within a municipality or county. Um, and now we're seeing similar data on how vaccines are being dispensed. And so I think calibrating that information to the extent possible to prioritize getting interventions to those that are at the most risk is really important. Um, and on, on vaccines, I think that um, while there have been no shortage of frustrations in that rollout, I think that local governments are doing a great job figuring out how to directly reach seniors that are not as tuned into social media or as readily available to navigate these online uh, registration portals. 
And we've heard many examples of, of local governments literally just cobbling together lists by hand of um, using partnerships with churches or other social networks or looking at their property tax records and building those lists so that they can proactively reach out to make appointments for people instead of letting them find their way through the system. And I, I also think that this ties into discussions about the, the rescue plan, um, but the local governments really continue trying to leverage whatever resources they can to ensure that essential services like housing and utilities, and, and that would include broadband for sure, can be provided to those in their community that are most in need. And so that means using those funds from the CARES Act and, and leveraging them with other existing financing streams like community development block grants. And it can also mean finding just more proactive ways to work with, say, property owners um, as partners in, in solving these problems. You have surveys that you did, that you conducted uh, on, on COVID-19. And, and it's interesting. It offers evidence about potential evolutions in the virtualization of, of various things, in, in particular civic engagement, uh, the staffing strategies for local governments, and, and some ways in changing how uh, perfect uh, public service delivery is done. I'd like to take civic engagement first. How has engaging with local stakeholders transformed as a result of this pandemic? And what are some of the benefits and continued challenges in this area? Well, I'll start on this one. So um, as a person trained in community engagement, I, I want to say engagement can mean a lot of different things. So that can be everything from simply keeping the public just informed to actually the other end of the spectrum, basically handing over significant decision-making power to the public. But I'm, I'll assume that we're generally talking about something somewhere in between. Um, but it, And I think certainly the pandemic has definitely increased opportunities for a lot of people to plug into what their local government is doing. Um, in our survey work, we saw that over half of local governments had increased their use of virtual tools to engage people outside of even just the, the virtual public meetings that I talked about earlier. Um, so they're, they're using these tools in increasing ways, and certainly uh, more people can simply call in or log in to a council meeting or some other type of engagement activity and not have to worry about all those extra details like childcare or parking or what time is it versus, you know, getting dinner on the table. And in many communities, they have definitely tracked increases in participation. The, of course, the trick for me is the digital divide is still a real thing. And so even if these remain more of the norm, which we expect that they will using more of these virtual technologies for engagement, um, it will still be important to track who you're not hearing from and think about other ways to capture those perspectives. Uh, so as I think about that, I think about those vaccine lines where you're, you're bringing in those um, sort of disconnected populations and maybe that's a way to um, hit multiple birds with one stone and um, catch them, share information, et cetera. So I think that we'll continue to see the merits of using a variety of strategies and making sure that we're calibrating the tools and the messages to the specific populations of interest. So call centers, you know, might be a little bit old fashioned, but they still seem to be very ideal for seniors, for example, and they can be staffed by volunteers. So how has the move to online and virtual engagement impacted the way local government employees do their work? Uh, what are some of the challenges being faced by local governments in the area of workforce staffing and development? And, and maybe perhaps you can talk about how these challenges are being addressed. I'll start on this one. Maybe Tad has more to add, but um, kind of continue on my, uh, continuing on my engagement soapbox, I, I think that 
we continue to learn lessons about how to use these tools most effectively. So one of our members had pointed out, um, she several months ago, and I, I agree with her that you know, running a Zoom meeting is, is really more of a, a planning and community development role or, or area to exercise that expertise than it is an IT function. So um, while at first it was like, find the person who's most adept at running the, those Zoom controls, you know, if we're thinking about using these longer term, who within your staff is, has that expertise um, and is the right place to, to hold that uh, role? And then we've also talked about the customer service expectations, obviously getting more in line with the private sector for, for a while and especially now, so that there can often be this pressure to respond immediately to an issue or a question, um, or especially in this last few months, um, an example of misinformation or disinformation. So that really underscores the need for up-to-date social media policies and crisis communication strategies so you know who speaks and when, and that's especially important in a decentralized work environment. Um, and then that also raises uh, attention to cybersecurity threats and the need for continued training on that, which I know Tad may probably may want to add some more thoughts on. Since yeah, I mean, just the, the cybersecurity effort is, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily something that local governments thought that much about um, just five or so short years ago. And then all of a sudden you had a major event happen in Atlanta and then follow on major events in places like Baltimore. So, you know, the cybersecurity threat, when you when you start elevating, increasing the number of vectors and you move people off site and they're using technologies on their home networks, you do create some um, enhanced risks for local governments to, to, to make a misstep because an employee responds to a phishing email, which suddenly opens up the entire enterprise um, to a cyber attack or a ransomware event. So, I mean, there's lots of you know, things that local governments have had to figure out on the fly. Some of them have done it successfully. Others have run into challenges um, uh, along the way. So to what extent uh, have the data you collected and analyzed suggested that localities have realized that virtualization is an operational theme that's here to stay? And, and more importantly, what is the implication of this insight to how government delivers services? I mean, this is a, a theme that ICMA has been tracking for decades, quite honestly. We, I'm actually involved in another historical project where I'm spending a lot of time uh, reviewing articles in our newsletter from the, from the 60s. And at the time, there was you know, great hope and promise for this new thing called a, um, a computer, which sounded like something that took up the entirety of the basement of the, of the building. Um, but having said all that, I mean, we've been tracking the evolution of technology uses, particularly e-government and virtualization for, for at least the last 20 years in, in this e-government space. And the data is pretty clear. It, it's been showing a pretty steady progression of increasing usage of, of e-commerce and other virtualization strategies for uh, e-commerce needs like purchase of permits and licenses and payments. Um, all those interactions, which once upon a time and still do in some places, quite honestly, may have required a, a trip down to city hall or a visit to the post office to, to pay a bill or to send in some forms. Um, the hope is that those kinds of transactions are, are gonna start disappearing as we um, begin to see at least a, you know, an uptick an increasing steady again, progression of, uh, of online and e-commerce services used by, by local governments. And just echoing what Laura said, 
you know, just a moment ago too. I mean, I, I do expect to see a, an increased usage of, of hybrid approaches for for civic engagement, whether that's for council meetings um, of elected officials or public commentary on programs, projects, and and services that uh, would typically be responded to through an in-person event or some other strategy. Um, you know, we've been saying for a long time in the profession that that you know engagement with the public needs to evolve and needs to start figuring out ways and how to meet people where they are which uh, more often than not these days has been on their couch or at their dining room table with the with the computer on their lap so i i think the pandemic has really shown that um virtual engagement with with the community stakeholders is viable and, and appreciated um, with the caveats that, that that laura mentioned earlier about making sure that you're not just communicating with a, a portion of your community, but you're uh, ensuring that all voices are being heard and, and have the opportunity to uh, uh, to make their points. So, Tad and Laura, local government workforces similarly transitioned as much as the private sector uh, from, say, in their case, city hall to home offices. So, according to your surveys, um, alternative work arrangements grew during the pandemic. And I was wondering if you could elaborate. Uh, what do these arrangements look like presently? What does the data say about the future of this area? Well, I'll chime in here. I mean, you're, you're right. You've, you've probably hit on, honestly, one of the, the biggest headlines um, to come out of this in terms of shifts on the local government um, on operations. And that's those alternative work arrangements. As you, I think our, our, excuse me, our survey data did demonstrate that a majority of local governments have implemented really unprecedented AWAs, um, if you want to call them that. But so what that looks like is usually staggered scheduling and then much broader telework policies. And they did that within the first months of the pandemic. Um, and then we had also asked them to project what, you know, what did they see as, as far as the future of those practices and a majority plan to either continue as they have been since the beginning of the pandemic or as Tad was saying, shift to some sort of hybrid strategy. We just hosted a, a webinar just last January, this past January, um, where we we brought in some human resource professionals that work with specifically public sector employees and also um, just the general workforce, and they had been hearing similar things. And so, um, I think the implication is is clearly a need for updated and expanded telework policies in perpetuity, not just these temporary arrangements. And that's going to trigger a whole host of other considerations up and down the chain, how to better support supervisors in the onboarding of a remote employee and the ongoing management of them, um, how to make these policies equitable when you're thinking about who really can work from home. And, and that question has really blown up because um, this last year has really demonstrated that functions and services we never really thought um, possible before can be done you know, from an iPhone. <laughs> And I'll just you know add in there too. I mean, uh, there there are major differences around the country too. I mean, parts of uh, the coastal communities and and in the Northeast and the West Coast are likely innovating with more alternative work arrangements per se. Because you know much of the Southeast and the Southwest, uh, many of those local governments went back to work sometime last year. So I think there's a lot of questions in here about um, what the future of alternative work arrangements look like. And um, that's some data that we probably want to capture at ICMA um, in the near future. How has telework taken a great leap forward? We'll explore this question 
and so much more when a special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its Impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. Joining me today is Tad McGilliard and Laura Kaderis. So in your essay for the special report, COVID-19 and its Impact for the IBM Center, you reference a study of mayors and city managers, which suggests that teleworking uh, will take a great leap forward. Why is this the case, and can you elaborate on some of the findings? Well, I'll start on this one. I mean, I I think you can answer this in a couple of ways. Um, And first, I'll just say, I mean, I think that's a common sentiment that where many people are feeling kind of trapped and anxious to get out of our our home offices, whatever those look like. And it's been a little bit, the the big shift to telework has has led to this blurring of your personal and, and work boundaries. But, you know, there I think there have been some benefits, and there are some that people are interested in not letting go. Um, We're not on video right now, but I would guess that at least two of us are not wearing suits as we have this conversation. Um, Seriously, as we've been discussing, you know, local governments were largely behind the curve on embracing telework. And so this really was a, a forced experiment that I think largely has showed that it can work. And it has managers thinking about how, you know, in terms of their own staff, how this can be actually a really attractive lever in attracting talent in the future if you're open to this sort of arrangement. And then I think that um, because so many other sectors have gone through a similar evolution over this last year, maybe not as as, um, far reaching as local governments have, I think the, the general perspective on telework has shifted too. So that decreases some of the perceived concern that there might've been about public employees not being, you know, at city hall at the desk. Um, but it also has bigger implications for just where people want to live. So this is an economic development opportunity for places, whether those are, are you know, larger cities. Um, one of the famous examples that keeps getting floated around is um, the Tulsa remote experiment where they're making a pitch to relocate tech workers to Tulsa, Oklahoma. But even, you know, small and rural communities have assets in terms of the, the quality of life that they offer that's maybe just different and what some people are seeking as long as the broadband access is available. I'd like to turn now to survey insights. How important is it for local governments to conduct what you folks term 
as after action analysis. And what does this analysis entail? Well, I mean, this ties a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier with, with the, the need to do to hot wash the event at some level. But just you know, to shortly answer the question, I mean, after action reports are critical and very important. Um, and I'll just refer back to a report that we commissioned um, a few years ago, I think it was in 2019, by uh, one of our longtime members who's now a, an academic at Old Dominion University. But Ron Carley is the former city manager in Charlotte. But before that, he was the county manager in, in Arlington County, Virginia, and was had just been on the job for nine months when the 9-11 attacks happened on the Pentagon, which resides in his jurisdiction. So he's he's frequently been called upon over the last 20 years to be a spokesperson for how to um, effectively prepare for, respond to, and recover from, from disasters. But in this report that he, he wrote for us, and, and, he, and then he profiled 20 or so communities that had experienced various kinds of disasters from mass shootings to flooding, tornadoes, wildfires, hurricanes, all the, the various things that we've come to know as, as, as natural disasters and, and human-caused disasters. Um, and he notes in this you know, very well-done research paper that after-action reports are really the foundation of preparedness and the preparedness strategies that, that local governments need um, to be ready for, for the next disaster. So in that sense of thinking about after action reports, they are an essential tool, not only for helping your community understand what went wrong, what went right, but also potentially to help other places um, that may have um, similar crises uh, in the future. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of conclude the response here by, by, by just what he said, which was that after action reports are probably among the best learning materials available for for crisis and emergency planning for the community, both in which the crisis occurs, as well as, again, others that someday may share that, that same awful experience. As a follow-on, how can local government leaders nurture a creative culture that leads to an engaged workforce? You know, I, I hate to keep quoting other people, but it's interesting. I was watching um, an interview just the other day with, with General James Mattis, who you former official in the in the previous administration's White House, and also, a, um, I believe, a three or four-star general in, in the Marine Corps. And he was talking at a, a, a virtual local event of an organization that we um, frequently work with down in Texas. And, and he said something to the effect, which I thought really nailed the, the, the ethos and the spirit of, of nurturing a creative culture, particularly um, in the event of a crisis. And, and I'm going to you know, not quote him exactly, but it goes something to the effect of, it's very important to know the plan, to know the doctrine, but you also need to know that in a crisis, you need to be ready to divest of the normal way of doing things and get on with figuring out solutions. Um, you know, Laura and I, we talked about it earlier. I mean, local governments have had to pivot, pirouette, pivot again, um, dance quickly, figure out new ways of doing different kinds of things. The challenge um, during this pandemic with all the other compounding and intersectionality of emergencies that have been going on has really been trying to, again, to stay ahead of the crisis as it's unfolded. Um, and through that whole process, I think we, we were pleased to see just how many communities figured out that they were far more agile and, and creative during the crisis than I think probably most of their staff thought they ever could be. Um, specifically, what can you know local governments do? I think we, we talk about in the report how important it is to seek out candid feedback and to you know, reward creative thinking however you can. 
um, especially in times of crisis. And then we've, we've seen, and Laura mentioned these two earlier, repurposing of assets, whether it's broadband um, or excess facilities for childcare or what have you. Um, there's been a lot of creativity which has come to bear, uh, been used as solutions for, for you know, what are very specific challenges in, in, in many, many communities. I have um, a consultant who's doing some work um, with us on some other topics and, and he's constantly talking to us because we're trying to unfold some new ideas uh, about some global programming that organizational culture really drives strategy, which then guides um, implement, implementation of, of tactics operations and in local government par parlance, the programs, policies and, and service delivery that they put in place to, to tackle the issues in their community. Um, and I think those organizational cultures that have a, you know, a demonstrated level of, of creative spirit are the ones that have really thrived um, during the pandemic. And I would just add one, one little thing here. Um, I was trying to pull, pull up in my, in my files. Um, I remembered when we were, we were taking stock of the, uh, the current status of community, it, it's kind of funny to say reopening plans. These were, um, the date on this document is back in August when we thought, I don't remember where we were at before wave two or, or what, but um, anyway, uh, as communities were, you know, if they, whether they had a, a recovery plan um, that they could build on from the start or they were completely writing one from scratch um, a few months in, Yuma County, Arizona was a, a notable one that we had come across because the, the policy document actually had a section built in where they were asking employees to identify areas that they hadn't quite figured out and they had explicitly laid out processes for when you identify the issue, how does it get resolved, how do you, you know, beta test a response and I, I thought that was an, an innovative and, um, you know, a recommended approach to, um, you know, having everyone be engaged in, in continuous problem solving. So the pandemic has prompted critical reflection on the part of uh, local government leaders from pretty much every level of government. So I was wondering, how can government leaders do strategic planning for the future, either through scenario planning, strategic foresight efforts, and why is it so important? Well, again, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll take a first crack here. Um, you know, I think one of the toughest things that, that that local government professionals have to figure out how to do is to figure out how to stop doing some things. Programs and policies and services have constituencies, both in elected officials and they have them in, in the community as well. So sometimes the toughest thing is to figure out how to stop, again, doing what you've done for, for however many years. We've been highlighting strategic planning as a core leading practice of local governments. And I, I would say that it's, it's, it's done in various forms in, in, in many places, but maybe not to the level that it should be about what you're just describing, which is the scenario planning and the, and the, the deep dive into a look at what the future may hold for the community, for the enterprise of local government, or, or what have you. And I think the pandemic has, you know, helped you know, lay bare some of the, the shortcomings in, in some of our communities. And we, we talked about some of those examples earlier. You know, the one in particular, which stands out to me that because it's it's been a big issue um, in the region where I live is the, is the lack of broadband infrastructure in many communities that were, you know, forced to close and deliver K-12 education virtually, even though you might have had hundreds, if not thousands of students who didn't have access to that broadband. So it revealed a, a 
um, a, a very large shortcoming that had a strategic planning process been in place might have might have popped it up as hey in the event we had to do something like x we need to make sure that we have immediate solutions for when this situation like has happened all over the country kids go virtual and there's no way for them to connect um, into a system um you know i think the pandemic is also besides just showcasing shortcomings um it's it's really going to provide a catalyst for for local governments to take that strategic look into the future and maybe get a, a better handle on what their long-term vision should be um, for an ideal community and what the local services um, should entail to, to help actualize some part of that vision. Uh, you both point out in your essay that these community challenges um, and the needs are not solely the responsibility of local authorities. I was wondering how important is it for government leaders to keep engaging with the community and partnering with non-governmental organizations? Well, I, I think it's essential. I mean, I think not only is it, in my mind, just the right thing to do, and often the, the, the way to get the most efficient and best use out of your resources, I think it's your insurance policy. Um, this is something we've emphasized for a long time. Ted referenced uh, Ron Carley's report. It's a clear theme of that report. Um, so going back prior to COVID, you, you may never predict exactly how these relationships will pay off in an emergency, but they surely will. And I think echoing some themes that, that came up earlier, I mean, we, we talk about how so many things were unprecedented this last year. I would suggest that there's never really been a better time to be open to new ways of working with new community partners um, so that we're, we're better positioned to deal with the next challenge around the corner. And like Ted said, um, reimagine things. We actually, while we were working on all of this COVID research, um, we worked on another resource throughout the last year that was about helping local governments find new ways of building trust and finding ways to collaborate around problem solving with their communities by working with artists and culture culture bearers, we'll, we'll call them. So I, I think that has a lot of potential. I would, I would encourage and I would expect that local governments are going to continue being creative and thinking about doing that, their reimagination re about what's possible together. What other guidance can we offer to keep innovation and transformation moving forward in local government management and operations? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its Impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations. Joining me today is Tad McGilliard and Laura Kaderis. So what other advice or guidance can you offer to keep innovation and transformation moving forward in local government management and operations? 
I'll start. No, I'll, I'll just refer back to some of the data that we have on hand to, to kick it off. But we, we did a survey in, in 2016 or 17. Laurel, you can correct me if I've got that wrong. Um, but it was focused on innovation and, and local governments and what how they approach innovation from a policy and programmatic standpoint. And three of the primary factors that were highlighted as inhibiting innovation in, in the local government was the lack of awareness about how to proceed, the, the organizational culture, which dampened enthusiasm for innovation, and then also a, a lack of internal expertise for how to even proceed um, uh, with, a, with an innovative mindset uh, about tackling you know, existing challenges in the communities. You know, I, I actually I have very few original thoughts. I feel like I'm just quoting lots of people sometimes as we're going forward. But we, we Laura and I found uh, one of the great quotes I think that we've stumbled across in the in the last few years, and we're using it in some of the other content that we're writing. But it's it's by a, a former ICMA member way back in 1918, at the literally in the beginning of the last pandemic, and he's given a speech in our annual conference, and he says. Um, something to the effect of someday we shall have managers who have achieved national reputation by successfully leading their commissions into great new enterprises of service. The great city managers of tomorrow will be those who push beyond the old horizons and discovered new worlds of service. And I think what we've sort of tried to indicate throughout this interview, and I think through this paper and, and a lot of the other research that we've done is that there have been more innovation in the last year that's happened in local governments where city managers, county managers, their staffs, their partners in the community, um, the entire ecosystem of organizations and stakeholders that, that work to make great places uh, or working to make their places greater have been pushing beyond those, those old horizons and, and finding new ways of, uh, of helping their constituents, be they individual citizens or residents or small businesses. And we've got some really great examples and we didn't have a chance to get into them in the report, but there's some wonderful examples which are popping up where managers are, again, challenging those old horizons and pushing past them to deliver vaccines. And Laura mentioned these earlier, but we've got a, a couple of communities which we're about to profile, one in Florida and another one in, in Illinois, both of which got their hands on some COVID-19 vaccines and, and quickly set up vaccination pods for their elderly residents and those others who are really struggling. Um, to use the online registration tools. And so there's there's plenty of examples out there like that. And I, you know, I think one of the one of the missions and the important things that organizations like ICMA, quite honestly, you know, Michael, the, the work that the IBM Center for the Business of Government does is to keep putting out those, those innovative ideas, whether it be in, in content or interviews or educational sessions and all the various things that that, that groups like our our two enterprises do every day. I would maybe just just tack on here. I mean, I, I can't I can't really um, add to those comments about the the sustaining the transformation and innovation. But just maybe as a compliment, um, I think it is also still really important to um, acknowledge explicitly just the basic sort of professionalism of these local government managers in in making the best out of a, a really dire situation. Um, I, you know, we with our survey, we also had asked um, several months into the pandemic about impacts on on their workforce in terms of layoffs and things like that. And, and we found that they were really making doing whatever they could around the edges to try and keep their people employed and to not have to significantly um, impact in, uh, investments in infrastructure. In fact, some were saying 
we're putting our money into infrastructure because that's going to pay off uh, on the other side of this crisis. So, um, and you know, so much of this vaccine rollout, as frustrating as it has been, um, it's it's outside of the control of a local government manager, and they are just doing everything they can to fill in the gaps and get people to the right information. So. Um, just not to discount the importance of that work, too, in addition to all of the innovative and transformative thinking. So both uh, Laura and Ted, what prompted your interest in this topic? Well, I'll, I'll take a stab. I mean, like, like many other associations that have, you know, constituencies like ours who are in the profession of local government, and they have obviously a very direct role in the response to the pandemic, we started getting you know, twitchy in January and February, the things we were seeing started to make us a little nervous. I remember sitting in a room with our executive director, who's the former city manager in, in Austin, Texas. And he, he said something like, you know, we don't have an EOC emergency operations center here at, at ICMA, but I'm forming one and you're it. And he looked uh, at <laughs> everybody sitting around the table and basically knighted us as the ICMA emergency operations center. And from, you know, relatively Soon after that, we we formed up a an action team to, on the on the pandemic, um, which is focused on writing content like the work that we did for for IBM, producing educational sessions, um, starting up some peer to peer connections. We've got a new, not new anymore, but we've got a um, a social networking site that we built just for our members that they use to communicate with one another. And we produced, you know, a steady stream of content. I want to say between 150 and 200 pieces of, of unique content on subjects um, as lighthearted as how to how to safely do Halloween in your community to very, very serious um, recommendations around mental health for, for our members. Now, I want to give Laura a little kudos. I mean, she was tapped early on to be the director of this, of this action team. And uh, internally, it has really inspired some some creative thinking and creative change about how we operate internally and certainly um, we've also heard from our members that the 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 work that we've done you know over the last year has been um, very helpful uh, for many people as they've again tried to find new ways of doing things to confront the impacts of the pandemic yeah it has it has been um really i guess i'd say validating that you know even when we can't see each other in person as coworkers and it it feels weird to be sitting in the same chair <laughs> staring at the same wall for a year to know that um we are still somehow having we're we're getting more sort of regular feedback from members that the information we've shared has been useful or or even just the opportunities for them to share information with each other through that um for example that platform that Ted just mentioned but it is, I can't, I can't not acknowledge the, the irony of, I mean, Ted, I think it was literally one year ago, almost to the day that we were preparing to leave the office for, we were told two weeks, I think. And we, I remember sitting, you know, at a table less than six feet apart and saying, I wonder if this will be the prism that we always see things through, um, you know, in the next few months, year. And we've kind of laughed about it. And, and obviously uh, that is true. Um, but it, you know, we are trying to get, I think, to the point where, um, obviously there are still urgent response questions that we want to support members in working through, but, um, but really emphasizing the, as we've been talking about all, all this afternoon, you know, the transformation potential, the reimagination, the pushing beyond future horizons, and we see a lot of potential there. So, Tad and Laura, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? Sure. This is Tad, and I've, I've been at ICMA now for about 18 years. So the better part of the, I guess, the last half of my career has been spent there. 
I'm currently our director of, of research and development with a you know portfolio that spans some of our content development, um, as well as a lot of the technical assistance that I that I just mentioned to you there as well. You know, my background is in um, public policy and political science. Spent the better part of my early career working um, inside universities and for extension teams that that worked on different kinds of projects, not all of which were with local governments, but with other stakeholders on, on different topics. Um, a lot of my work in the past has been focused on sustainability, livability, resiliency. Um, and so as horrifying as the pandemic has been, it has also been somewhat professionally invigorating to, to put some of those skills to use for the benefit of local communities. And as for me, um, so I've been at ICMA for, I guess, about three and a half years, although I guess we should I feel like the last year counts as, as longer for some reason. But um, but uh, my my title right now is director of survey research, but it's been kind of a long running joke that it does seem like the, the role coordinating the COVID response has been the, the dominating function um, and may continue to be for a while. But um, my background is in community development, economic development, and also spent uh, a fair amount of years prior to joining ICMA, um, working in, in universities, um, most recently at Michigan State University. And it was actually through that work um, that I first became connected to ICMA. We partnered on some research around local and regional food systems and did some survey work on the other side as, as the partner. And now I'm coordinating it from from the inside, but um, would consider myself a generalist and really have enjoyed putting that um, mindset to work and, and uh, dealing with the far-reaching nature of this crisis. So yeah, as we've been talking about, it's it's been a challenge, but um, in, in some ways it's been kind of invigorating. Tad and Laura, thank you for joining me today. Uh, and more importantly, thank you for your contribution to the IBM Center special report, COVID-19 and its impact, seven essays on reframing government management and operations. Thanks again for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to, to work with you guys. You do wonderful work. Yeah, we're really grateful for the opportunity to, to do the writing and, and to talk it through with you today. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, COVID-19 and its impact, a series on how the pandemic has transformed government management and operations with Tad McGilliard and Laura Caderas from the International City-County Management Association, ICMA, and contributors to the IBM Center Special Report, COVID-19 and its Impact, Seven Essays on Reframing Government Management and Operations. You can download this and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.